The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Adam Tooze. We talked about his new book, Shut Down, How Covid Shook the World's Economy. We talked about the problems and pitfalls of writing instant history, why shutdown is a more useful way of thinking about how governments and ordinary people responded to the Covid-19 crisis than the more commonplace term of lockdown, And finally, we chatted about why China's radical efforts to suppress the virus in Wuhan, Hubei province and beyond was not as typical of the regime as is commonly supposed. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family by Sophie Lewis. A landmark text of visionary feminist thinking, Full Surrogacy Now is out now in paperback from Verso Books. Offering a radical utopian vision of feminism, family and gestational labour, Sophie Lewis's writing offers new possibilities for living. Get it along with everything else Verso publishes by joining their book club. Verso Book Club subscribers get all titles that Verso publish each month in ebook format with options to receive books in the post. And now to today's interview. Adam Tooze is Professor of History at Columbia University and the Director of their European Institute. His books include Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and The Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy. His writing has appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Financial Times, The Guardian, The New Left Review, and The London Review of Books, amongst many other publications. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. I began the interview by asking Adam about the genesis of his new book, Shut Down, How Covid Shook the World's Economy, which as he describes in the introduction, was not the book he had planned to write as the follow-up to Crashed, which had analysed the financial crisis of 08-09 and its economic fallout. It was a shock, like everyone else, yes. I mean, I had other plans for 2020. Um, <laughs> And I was really quite oblivious to what was going on, actually. We we happened to be in East Africa traveling with my wife's company. And so I had a rather eccentric, displaced kind of vision of of the world at that moment, at least displaced by my, you know, from from my usual, from the axes I normally revolve around. And... We were dimly aware, really, of what was going on. And, and then it was really on the flight back by way of, of Istanbul, you know, Erdogan's giant new airport there, that that I really kind of realised, oh, my God, like, you know, this was Friday the 6th of March 2020. And then what happened is essentially that the narrative of crashed and the analysis which I had sort of pulled together there, which was itself, of course, a compilation of the insights of economists and financial market analysts and so on working on the crisis of 2008 and its aftermath, it suddenly just wrapped round and it kind of caught up with all of us because 
following week, so so arriving back in New York on the 6th, then there was the, the weekend 7th of 8th of March, which is when the OPEC crisis broke out. And it's clear that then there was going to be no deal between the Saudis and the Russians and the oil price collapsed. And then on that Monday morning, all hell broke loose. And, and, it, and it seemed so reminiscent of 2008 to so many people that I was enrolled willy-nilly by journalist friends in trying to make sense of what was happening all around us. Because the question was, you know, is there a, is there a big bank balance sheet at risk? What's happening in the so-called repo markets for US treasuries? In some ways, it was even more terrifying than any moment in 2008. And this time round, rather than being a retrospective commentator, because I really hadn't written about 2008 as it was happening, I was immediately immersed in the sense-making of everyone that I'd drawn on as sources, because the book had sort of reverbed within that community. And after a week or so, it just became evident that I really just couldn't go on. My, or my former life of working on you know, the political economy of energy policy in the 1970s with Jimmy Carter and the oil crises was fascinating, but it was so removed from this moment that we were dealing with. I just couldn't sustain it. I couldn't sustain it emotionally, intellectually. And that's when I just surrendered to the process of trying to write about this moment, which then perhaps, you know, inevitably, because it's inside my head, you know, it became an extension of the crashed argument. It's essentially a follow on from the previous book, trying to understand the dynamics that were unfolding then and compounded now, of course, by this anthropocenic shock. Long predicted, finally arrived and, you know, blowing things up in a way that nothing had in 2008. As you say, you weren't writing crash is not the same kind of book it's not a this is almost a, an instant history and is that quite a daunting thing to do in, in the sense that inevitably because it's a first take there's perhaps going to be a lot that's that's not going to necessarily hold up and also there's there's questions about where do you finish the book at what point can we say we're out of the moment of crisis at least on the economic front which i presume kind of dictated the end of the book to some extent Yes, I think that's that's definitely the case. I mean, finishing Crash had been bad enough because I, I started out doing it at the moment of calm. You know, I, I started writing Crash in 2013, which was after Obama had been re-elected, after Draghi had calmed the Eurozone crisis with, you know, whatever it takes. And, uh, you know, as I, I freely admit, I mean, that, that turned out, of course, to be a misapprehension about the state of the world even then. But that was the condition for me to have embarked on this contemporary history project in the first place was a sense of closure, which turned out to be false. And really from, from when that became evident for 2014, 15, 16 with Ukraine and then the Greek crisis in 15, Brexit, Trump, I was already wrestling in trying to finish Crash with this problem of, of how exactly it is that you you go about framing a history which is being written in the midst of the events which it's describing. and But there is no doubt at all that the shutdown radicalises that, absolutely. And I guess I was provoked as well in the sense that Perry Anderson wrote this essay about my work in which she describes me as a sort of situationist. He describes me as writing out in, in medias res, so in the, out of you know the immediate circumstances. And I was kind of tempted to just roll with that and say, OK, so let's do that. Let's see what that entails. And there's no doubt it involves risks. Yeah, I mean, there's, it, it was it was hair raising to a degree, and it still is. And who knows what could happen? And you are absolutely right in the, you know your suggestion that obviously this book achieves a false kind of closure in the sense that the epidemic, the pandemic, is absolutely still with us and rumbles on. There was a reverse kind of marketing type of fear, of course, that the whole thing would be old news and buried and the last thing in the world anyone would want to read about would be the pandemic. And that, unfortunately, is not the case in a sense. 
So, but the book in any case is, you know, the pandemic is the trigger, but what I'm interested in is this idea of polycrisis, right? This idea of how we think about the convergence of different strands of crisis, how we're going to analyze that, because I'm convinced that that is the challenge going forward, is that ecological crisis, the anthropocenic destabilization is not going to avoid the problems of politics or financial instability or geopolitical tension, but we'll interact with them, compound them. And, and 2020 was a first chance to see that at a truly global, on a truly global scale and moving at incredible speed, right? And so perhaps this won't be the only book of this type that you find yourself writing, if that's, if that's correct. We're looking at compounding crises upon crises in the, in the future. Well, that's just, I think, how we have to think about climate, obviously. And in a sense, also, when we think about climate, we have to, you know, because climate will manifest in many different ways, and many of them will be these short-term horrific shocks. You know, they will be intense, exaggerated hurricane seasons, or, you know, as Kim Stanley Robinson speculates, you know, a, 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 a ghastly summer in India, which kills millions of people because of intensity of heat. That's actually the form that the climate crisis will take when we think of it scientifically in the form of the intergovernmental panel on climate change type reports it takes on a medium term or quality that it will not have when it actually happens to us any more than you know the extraordinary fires in california feel like a long-term problem to anyone there (laughs) like it's coming to destroy you and your life so the title of the book is shut down how covid shook the world's economy and in the book, you explain why you chose that term rather than lockdown, uh, a much more commonplace term when thinking about the pandemic, and a term which has a more coercive and, and obvious carceral connotations as well. Can you explain what you were getting at by using the term shutdown instead? Yeah, yeah lockdown would have been more obvious, but I also do think it's, it's unproblematic use is to obscure as a kind of contentious politics. You know, one of the central objects of contention about COVID politics has in fact been the extent to which you describe the measures that we took. And I would use the word we knowingly here in this case, as coercive, as top down as, you know, because lockdown was a phrase that before the crisis, we would certainly in the US context have overwhelmingly used for to describe collective punishment in America's horrendous prison system, right? That's when you lock down a wing of a prison. It's a collective punishment. And there are instances in the COVID crisis, which in some sense, I think, are fairly described in those terms. The coercive emergency measures taken in India, for instance, at the end of March are perhaps the most dramatic example. But the imposition of shutdown measures in South Africa was also reinforced by considerable amounts of state violence and at a lower level, but nevertheless coercive in France as well. The shutdowns were imposed that way. But if you lived in a place like New York, even though we were in the epicenter of the crisis, and even though America is of the a society with a notoriously fierce and indeed in some senses militarized system of policing, it simply wasn't enforced that way at all, ever. And yet we nevertheless achieved, you know, the streets of New York were empty of people and people were in a state of of shutdown. So I use that phrase to hold open this question of who whom, you know, who did what to whom uh, should not, I think, be presupposed by the term that we use to describe this. And if you get into the economics, the IMF has actually done some, you know, basic econometric testing of the proposition, you know, how much of the shutdown in economic activity was attributed to 
government-mandated decisions and how much of it was to do with self-protecting behaviour on the part of people, families, businesses, communities. And the evidence for the advanced economies is completely unambiguous, that the majority of the closure effect in the economic system was the result of choices being made. Of course, under coerced circumstances, nobody wanted to be in this situation and power hierarchies run through the private economy and through civil society. But in that space and not in the space, if you like, of government mandated action. So if you look at consumer behavior, you can see a big downshift in shopping and restaurant uh, usage in the United States weeks before the federal government finally actually mandated a nationwide policy of social distancing. So it's, it's almost akin to a crisis of confidence in the markets, I suppose. Well, in the financial and in the financial markets, this is absolutely dramatically the case, right? So one of the points of the book is to is to reveal how the real economic shock and the total social dislocation caused by the response to the crisis in March was mirrored in financial markets. And we came very close in March of last year to a financial crisis that would have been even more dramatic in its implications than the 2008 crisis because it affected the pivotal market on which the stability of the global financial system depends, which is the US Treasury market. It's uh, depending on how you count it. In any case, it's around about $20 trillion in assets, which are traded as the gold standard, triple A rated, solid basis for portfolio construction. So when big asset managers manage their portfolios, they balance their other assets against US treasuries. And that market began to destabilize in the second week of March. And that was driven entirely by private sector action. Right, That's essentially men and women at the centres of the allocation of capital choosing to run to cover. And when they all collectively do that, it produces a huge destabilisation, which the state then, and this you could take as a metaphor for one aspect of the state response in general, has to underwrite. So it's not as though, as it were, the state is coercively forcing people, depriving them the right to choose their risk preference and, you know, their 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 willingness to risk take, catching the virus or not. This was an instance of collective action on the part of private wealth managers requiring a state response to avoid a catastrophe resulting from a simultaneous run to the exit. So the state found itself, as it were, providing a safety net really for private action, which was itself safety seeking. And that's another way of thinking about what happened in the political economy of the life support systems, right, is that to a very large extent, the corporate sector made decisions in February and March for liability reasons, under pressure from their customers, from their workforce, to shut down production in various ways, and then quite explicitly looked to government to see them through the crisis. When you say regarding the the market for U.S. Treasuries and you say we could have seen a a real catastrophe in in the book, you talk about the potential for the market to melt down and and it would have taken the rest of the world with it when talking about the credit system. What would that mean in a concrete sense? Because I think that kind of talk can sometimes seem a little bit abstract to people. Well, what happens if banks, asset managers can no longer count on the U.S. Treasury as a safe asset? is that they have to sell everything else in their portfolio. So what we would have seen is an even larger collapse in the value of shares. We would have seen potentially bank failures. 
we would have seen also it become increasingly difficult for governments to fund their activities. Now, governments can fund themselves in lots of different ways. Modern monetary theory has taught us this. But the conventional way, the way in which they fund themselves, that doesn't disrupt existing structures, is by the circulation of cash into either short-term bills or long-term bonds of various types issued by the government. And that mechanism was breaking down in March 2020. And the Fed has been shy about this, but the Bank of England in incautious moments has said that they were worried about the capacity of the British government to issue debt at that moment. And if you think about what the British government needed to do at that moment, what in fact everyone needed to do at that moment, which was to borrow money to tide themselves through the crisis, the prospect that the sovereign would not be in a position to raise funds by issuing debt is horrifying because that is what was going to fund life support. Now, you could, of course, done this by issuing just simply issuing cash, which is what the Treasury, in fact, required the Bank of England to issue it with, namely the permission to just run up a large overdraft. But that really ruptures the existing politics and constitutional frame of the monetary system. So no one wants to go there. And that is, as it were, the ice that we were skating over at that minute. And the scale of the anxiety can be measured, if you like, in the mirror of what the central banks had to do. And from the second week of March, the American Central Bank in particular is buying government debt, treasuries, on a scale that we have never seen before. So, you know, we're used to saying the 2008 interventions were unprecedented. There's this thing called quantitative easing when the central bank buys assets and exchanges them for cash. Well, that was literally an order of magnitude smaller than what the Fed was doing under Jerome Powell by the end of March. They were buying a million dollars of assets a second. They were buying over $80 billion in a single day to suck these in relatively, well, normally speaking, treasuries are perfectly liquid, but they were becoming illiquid. So they were taking them out of the private balance sheets and giving people cash instead. And that was the metabolism that stabilized the, the financial system in March. And speaking to protagonists of this market, you know, senior market figures from the big banks, it's quite clear that they were genuinely horrified by what they were seeing, puzzled and horrified. This was not something they'd ever seen before. With the Lehman crisis, people had a pretty good idea of what was going on and why it was happening. But for this to be happening to the US Treasury market was sort of really outside the scope of really what could be imagined. And stopping that, stabilizing it and reestablishing almost the reverse relationship when everyone holds these debt quite happily and interest rates fall, which is what we've seen since then, is the conjuring trick that the central banks performed in the spring. On the radicalism and the scale of the response, so in the book you write that was this finally the death of the orthodoxy that had prevailed in economic policy since the 1980s? Was this the death knell of neoliberalism? And you go on to say that as a coherent ideology of government, perhaps it is. And I was interested by that comment because I think the last time we talked, which was very early on in the crisis, I mean, I think it may have been February or March, I think I asked the kind of standard, you know, what does this mean? What does this crisis mean for neoliberalism? And I, I remember that you responded by saying that you tended to shy away from those kind of typologies and, and talking about neoliberalism. And, and I wondered if there'd been a shift in your thinking that means you're more keen to grapple with the issue. Yeah, I decided to get off the fence, really. You know, the conversation is out there. In Crashed, I didn't really engage with neoliberalism as a theme. 
And it seemed sort of almost perverse not to do so in light of, of what's been going on and how interesting the conversation's gotten. I mean, I thought your interview with James Meadway a couple of weeks ago was absolutely fascinating. And he and I, I think, on the same page to a considerable extent. I think my answer is somewhat different in that I would differentiate a lot of different facets that constituted the neoliberal paradigm of which I agree with him really consolidates in the 1990s and the early 2000s. I think that's when to see it at its most, as it were, pristine. And one element of it, the element which intellectual historians have so productively mined, is this issue of, as it were, its coherence as a doctrine. And I think that has really, in very considerable ways, been corrupted, disrupted to the point of incoherence. It was also, however, also, and this is where I really fundamentally agree with James, it was also a practice of government. And that's much more ambiguous because I have, you know, continuously taken inspiration from David Harvey's very early analysis of neoliberalism. And, and you could see the same in somebody like Andrew Gamble, that, you know, it always had two faces. It was always Janus faced. It was on the one hand, the sort of German version, the Wolfgang Schäuble, ordo liberal order-making, constitutionalizing vision of economic governance. But it would just be ahistorical to deny that it also has always had an activist face. And so judging the end of neoliberalism by that standard is in fact very difficult to do because it's inherently Janus face. It's inherently, as it were, contradictory almost, you might say. One requires, if you like, to use Keynes's phrase, a general theory of neoliberalism. I mean, and I have a little pet theory that Keynes is, in fact, in some sense, the ultimate neoliberal, because he actually does theorise both the order-giving, think about Bretton Woods, and the interventionist aspects that are necessary to make capitalist economies run. Then there's a third dimension of neoliberalism, which we simply can't ignore, and which it seems almost to me abstract to discuss this topic without reference to it, which is that it's a social system, it's a structure of inequality, of hierarchy, of class relations. And at that level, you see, plus ça change, the, the difficulty in you know, concluding that neoliberalism is in some sense over is that, in fact, these actions that are being taken are entirely conservative, and the scale of the of the interventions in 2020 should not should not obscure the fact that the overall purpose of those interventions, extraordinarily large as they was, was fundamentally conservative. Right? I mean, the aim of the game is, as it were, to, to make people intact, to make them whole as far as possible, so that we come out the other side of what is conceived of as a temporary shock, more or less where we were at the beginning. Yeah, so the standard everything has to change to, for things to stay the same. Yeah, so this then is where I say that, as you can see, this becomes then a rather becomes a sort of a rather obscure. It's a complex object that we're looking at, and so I was thinking around for you know historical moments when politics had to be thought in this complex way. And one typical moment is one one, one often invoked is, is late nineteenth century conservatism. You know because conservatism of the classic eighteenth century ancien regime variety, in a sense never had to announce itself as conservatism. But whereas by the 19th century, if you're conservative in a post-revolutionary period, you're in fact engaged in a kind of modern politics. It's just conservative. So, and that comes in different forms, you know, totally dark black reactionary or, you know, people like Bismarck or his counterparts, Cavour in Italy, right? These conservative modernizers. And and their logic is literally this phrase, you know, for, for things to stay the same, everything has to change. And Daniela Gabor had this great phrase that she coined during the crisis, where she said, we were witnessing a revolution in monetary policy, but without any revolutionaries. And that, in a sense, is what I'm trying to capture by saying, yes, we are seeing 
a, a total break in, in concepts, we are seeing the activist face of neoliberalism as crisis fighting, but the people who are doing this are the same people, right? And and then there's a further dimension of, you know, you could keep spinning this out. What other conditions frame what we thought of as neoliberalism? Well, it really turns out that geopolitics was a key element of this. And this is one of the dimensions of crisis that we see in 2020. One could keep articulating other zones. Notions of subjectivity are also in the, you know, in the cultural studies approach to neoliberalism have been, have been profoundly fertile as a way of thinking about this. So this book doesn't clearly decide one way or another, but it maps out the terrain, I think, on which one might, or it maps out some of the terrain on which one might think this complex shift. And it does so explicitly, yes, I do, I do for the first time, really, take that on. Going back to that point of a revolution without revolutionaries, would you go further and say that the revolution is only possible because of the absence of, of real revolutionaries, and that perhaps if Bernie Sanders had been the president of the US at the time of the, the crisis, that we would have seen a real roiling crisis within American democracy because it would have been perceived as a move towards socialism, perhaps. Well, to just go back to before moving on to the Sanders point, in the central bank sphere, this is, as it were, where I would connect these different elements of thinking about the neoliberalism puzzle up. What are the conditions under which you can so uninhibitedly just toss all of the ideology out the window, go to the interventionist pole of the two of the Janus Face project? Well, the conditions under which you feel entirely politically safe. Or, you know, you're an extremist. An extremist is clearly one of the things we were in. But also, there is just really no risk of the tools which you are using being captured for a radical politics. And the reason why central banks were placed in the sort of independence bubble that they were placed in, in the 80s and 90s, was quite explicitly to insulate them from radical democratic politics. So if you can now do the things which you were previously barred from doing, that, I think, is a sign of the fact that the power balance has so radically shifted that, in a sense, the technocrats are operating in a vacuum. So precisely, the condition of possibility of non-revolutionary revolutionaries is that the real risk of actual revolution is off the table. And that's something, this is all, of course, directed at my friends in the Green New Deal MMT camp, who saw in this moment the possibility of great agency, right? That you, if you put the elements together, what you think, what you can quite reasonably conclude you're looking at is precisely the kind of package of policies that we need. Large-scale fiscal policy backed up by an activist central bank. What's not to like? This looks like the 1940s. And what I'm trying to say is it's a, it's a Potemkin village. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a mirage. It's, it's, it's a, a configuration that you get for completely different reasons and on the basis of a balance of force, which is totally unlike that of the 1940s. And that is indeed even the precondition for it even appearing before you in that form, right? So that's the barb here. Yes, I mean, the Sanders point, the Sanders counterfactual, I think is essential for thinking about the crisis in the US last year. And, and obviously, writing from the US as I did, being very immersed in the in the politics of that moment and, and having lived it. I mean, and I really honestly can say I've never felt more disconcerted and, and destabilized by a democratic political process than the one that we went through in the US last year. And I think we should not, you know, the normality that Biden has restored is is totally deceptive. And it was hair-raising, it was vertiginous, it was it was dizzying. And but so much less dizzying than I think the situation that we would have been in if if the Democrats had picked 
Sanders as their candidate. Because the the guardrails, as the Americans like to call them, the stabilizing forces that came into play to ensure that in the end, the GOP was wrestled into a position where McConnell had to accept that there was going to be a transition. I'm not sure that those guardrails would have played out in the way that they did, would have acted in the way that they did. And what we're talking about are big business, the courts, ultimately, and it's almost extraordinary to have to say this, the American military, that as it were, kept the, the republic safe. And in retrospect, of course, there's a lot of self-congratulation about the about the fidelity to the constitution that all of these groups displayed. But there's no test, right? Because it's Joe Biden. Yeah, it's Joe Biden, right? And Biden was picked precisely so he wouldn't test you, right? There, there was always if the Democrats had picked Sanders, the most likely thing. I mean, a, a whole bunch would have just discovered their inner loyalty to the GOP, and then be amongst the business community, and then be quite likely a billionaire would have run, you know, as a strong third candidate rather than as the as the jokes that we saw. And that would have, you know, most likely handed the election to Trump. Ed Luce at the FT had a great piece about this already back in 2019, like calling out, you know, American wealth saying, where do you actually stand? Because if you profess to stand behind the rule of law, then there's really no option here, right? You can't, you cannot suddenly allow your anti-tax, anti-socialist instincts to suddenly prevail if the Democrats choose one way. And, and if, but the decision-making processes inside the Democratic Party are preemptively shaped by this calculation. And Biden, you know, he gave that stunning speech in the in that hotel to wealthy donors in New York in nineteen. You know, he spelled it out in black and white. It's absolutely extraordinary. You know, you know, you know. Everyone in this room knows that we need to do a bit of redistribution, and everyone in this room knows it's not going to hurt any of you to any considerable extent. You know, and if we don't do it, we're going to. And it gets very nineteenth century. It gets very Victorian, right? It gets. And if we don't do this, we're going to face you know the dark forces of social upheaval. So America was in a in a in a very radical, you know, the I, I'm absolutely hostile to the idea that we should use the Weimar Republic as an analogy. But the very fact that the Weimar Republic is invoked as an analogy tells you the sort of place that we were in. That point you make about the Green New Deal crowd sort of saying this is a is a moment of possibility. Do you not think that obviously, as you say, there's not a strong labor movement in the US? There is there certainly isn't any kind of revolutionary horizon on the left in these times. But nonetheless, there is a socialist movement. It's plausible to imagine a left-wing candidate winning the Democratic nomination at some point and perhaps being elected president. So do you see the radicalism of the Fed's response and so on as perhaps at least having an impact in terms of a demonstration effect, which perhaps shows to ordinary people what is possible, what government can actually do? Yes, I do. And I think at that level, we should take hope from this. I mean, the book doesn't end on a, you know, obliquely deterministic, pessimistic. No, I, I think we've lost the comfort of that kind of thinking too, right? The space that we're in is just too broken, too incoherent to be certain about any kind of prediction like that. But we absolutely have seen, and we now are robbed of any excuse, right? That money is not the constraining factor here. The, the, this quote I, I use a lot, this, you know, this wartime quote from Keynes, where he said, you know, we can afford anything we can actually do, or words to that effect. It really, you know, was demonstrated in incredibly powerful form in 2020. Money is a technical matter. And if you allow it to be anything other than that, that's already, as it were, a preemptive political decision. The choices that we have are distributional. They're about actual resource constraints. They're about priorities and they're about technology in a creative sense, like the vaccine development programs demonstrated to us. Those are the real constraints on any kind of politics, conservative, progressive or whatever. And 
the progressive politics should take great heart from that. I, 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 it's impressive how dramatically the US political scene has shifted and continues to shift. And there's no doubt at all that within the Democratic Party, even amongst centrists like Chuck Schumer and people like that, the scope of the imaginable policy options has shifted very considerably. They, broadly speaking, get the idea that debt should not be their top priority. Not everyone shares that. So Nancy Pelosi is much more classically hawkish on debt than Schumer is. And we saw the, you know, the payoff from that in the spring of 2020, 2021 with the, you know, the first Biden, the rescue plan, which, which is really well targeted. You know, by American standards, there's not much giveaways there for the rich. The idea that this is, you know, endless plunder, as, as, as Robert Brenner called it, really doesn't hold for that at all. That was actually, by America's standards, a pretty sincere effort to give out $2 trillion or the best part of $2 trillion to middle and low income Americans quickly. So that is indeed extremely hopeful. And the scale, at least, of the Biden infrastructure programs, when you break it down, it all becomes far too small. But the fact that those things are even on the agenda and have to be negotiated with a powerful wing, left wing of the party in Congress is, is, is it's just flat out progress. It's a, it's a step in the right direction. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.